Good morning, Compass. Okay, raise your hand if you do not have a smartphone. Fletcher, Fallon? <laughs> okay, now raise your hand if you were 25 or older when you got your first smartphone. 25, okay, it's a good chunk of people. Okay, raise your hand if you were 20 when you got your first smartphone. Trust me? Okay. Um, what if, were you 16? 16 when you got your first phone? What about 12? Any 12-year-olds with a smartphone? Or maybe about 12 when they got their smartphone? Okay. So statistically, if you are ages 25 to 34, the average age you got yourself, your smartphone was 20. If you're in between the ages of 18 and 24, the average age is 16. And if you're a teenager now, the average age across um, all ethnic backgrounds is 12. That's from some research that Google did. So at younger and younger ages, we have the world at our fingertips. The average North American social media usage across all generations is two hours and four minutes a day. For Gen Z, people 24 or younger, social networks have surpassed search engines as the go-to product research channel. So you're much more likely to look at something in your Instagram feed or look something up on Instagram to see if you want to buy it than you are to go Google it online. It's never been easier to stay inside your house, whether that's for social interaction, groceries, work, and it's also never been easier to spend your money. You can literally buy things off of your phone while you are at work, making the money you need to buy those things. We live in a time where on the left, deconstruction is praised, deconstruction of family, of government, of faith, of business, and on the right, we have capitalism and the almighty dollar as the highest prize. We now have multiple generations who doubt the validity and the use of the very framework that human beings have used for thousands and thousands of years. We say, go out into the world and invent your own family, invent your own belief system, your own government, find your own meaning, and then we can't figure out why people under 40 are so anxious. The search for meaningful jobs and the hope for change through your political party of choice has become a new religion. But don't worry, because you see up to 4,000 ads a day that are all spending billions of dollars trying to convince you that if you just had this one thing, you might feel better. If you just had this house or that car or a partner... If you just voted this way, if this person just got into office, if you just relaxed and watched this show, or you went on that social media deep dive, or you went on that YouTube rabbit trail for a few more hours, you might feel better, or at least forget how you feel for a while. The right and left working together to make the autonomous, achieving, consuming individual. The sheep away from the herd. Wouldn't it be nice if we could trade that cultural narrative for something even better? Let's pray really quick. Jesus, we thank you for being here with us. And Holy Spirit, we just ask that you would um, open our ears and open our eyes to see what you have to say. That all distractions, whether that's worries or um, fear 
or anything that, that might get in the, in the way of hearing from you, we ask that those would be banished, and we ask that your words would be he- heard and that your truth would be told in your name. Amen. As always, Jesus speaks directly at the heart of things, directly into the cultural moment with ageless wisdom. He says, starting in Matthew verse six, or chapter 6, verse 19, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The literal translation is a pun in the Greek. It actually says, do not treasure up treasures on earth or do not hoard up hoards. Gary Stassen in his book on the Sermon on the Mount says, the foolishness of treasuring up treasures comes when I invest treasures with the expectation that they will give me a sense of life fulfillment, of being a worthy person, of being respected and appreciated by somebody important in my imagination or memory who did not give me love and appreciation when I needed it. Each time Jesus teaches about foolishness, it is about someone looking to the wrong source in a drive for worthiness, self-righteousness, honor, or reputation. At first glance, when we read this verse, we might think that Jesus is just saying something pretty straightforward. Do spiritual good deeds instead of being selfish and collecting things. It seems pretty basic. But then we get to verse 21, where your treasure is, there also will be your heart. The heart in Semitic anthropology, says Ben Witherington, is not merely the seat or center of affections, but of thought, conscious, and will. In short, it is viewed as the control center for the personality. Jesus knew something that modern neurology and psychology have just recently been able to prove that you become what you most commonly consume. Your brain is being made every day by the media you see, the relationships that you're in, and the daily habits that you form. Jesus goes on and says the same thing in another way. Verse 22, he says, The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Ben Witherington's commentary goes on and says that the the point here is that the whole life is clear or illuminated if one has a singleness of purpose. Has one's eyes fixed on God's goal. The eye is viewed in antiquity as the window into the soul, not merely the source of one's physical vision. Our bodies are designed for this. We become what we're around the most. You've heard that saying, you become like the five people closest to you or something like that. It's absolutely true. I finished this book a couple of years ago. It's called A General Theory on Love. I'm not even sure how I got it. I think I saw it at Barnes & Noble. Um, it took me a few years because the beginning, it was, it was written by um, three doctors, three MDs. And so the first half took me a few years to read <laughs> little portions of just because I, it was over my head. But I finally, a couple of years, got into the last three chapters and they're phenomenal. I would recommend this book to anyone. Um, but the point of the book 
The basic premise is how love changes the brain. In every form, friendship, marriage, children, therapy, these doctors talk about how the deepest, most basic, primal parts of our brains attuned to those we're around, especially as children, but all throughout our lives. He has this kind of funny example. They say, consider, for instance, that women who spend time together frequently find that their menstrual cycles come, they come into spontaneous alignment. This harmonious hormonal communion demonstrates a bodily connection that is limbic in nature because close friends achieve synchrony more readily than those who merely room together. So somehow your brain can tell which women you merely interact with, like that coworker that you really dislike. Your body's like, no, we are not getting on the same page with you. (laughs) But your body can tell the women that you are closest to and your body aligns with the women that you have the deepest relationship with. So put another way, where your treasure is, there your lifeblood also goes, literally. If your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Put another way, if your soul has been exposed to the wrong things, or if things get dark, or if somewhere along the way your brain has been built in a way that is painful or not serving you well, it shows up in your relationships. In a general theory on love, they they give another example. They say, if someone's relationships today bear a troubled imprint, they do so because an influential relationship left its mark on a child's mind. When the limbic connection has established a neural pattern, it takes a limbic connection to revise it. So when you have an unhealthy relationship pattern, you can't just decide, well, I'm gonna change this. I'm gonna change the way that my brain works. It takes a healthier person interacting with you in a better way for you to learn to be better. It says, when a therapist wants to help a patient who suffers from unfulfilling relationships or an immobilizing deficit in self-esteem, He, the therapist, wants to alter the microanatomy of another person's brain. Here's the craziest thing. A patient doesn't become generically healthier when they see a therapist. He becomes more like the therapist. So choose your therapist carefully. (laughs) The lie, it's a lie. If they say, well, their life is in shambles, but they have this education, nope. Wow, so every time I see this information, every time I think about this information, my mind starts turning and I'm amazed and thankful for who Jesus is. I'm astounded by the simplicity of his instructions, yet the more I learn, the more I see how deep the implications are. The library of scripture has stated these ideas for thousands of years and science is just illuminating why they're true. Suddenly, verses like Philippians 4.8 come up in a different way. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Paul isn't just saying, hey, make sure that you followers of Jesus are purists, that you don't do anything wrong for the sake of it. He is tapping into ancient wisdom. You are what you consume most. 
Or even this one in Romans 12, verse 2. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So what God is not saying is don't be like the world. And then if you try hard enough, you'll reach this magical threshold of goodness where God will finally impart to you his amazing mystery of a will. That's not what he's saying. He's saying something much deeper and I think much better. He's saying, let me transform your mind by being in relationship with you. Soon your brain will become the kind of brain that can think more like mine who can better understand what life in my kingdom is like. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. Another one from a general theory on love. In a relationship, one mind revises another. One heart changes its partner. This astounding legacy of our combined status as mammals and neural beings is limbic revision. The power to remodel the emotional parts of the people we love as our attractors activate certain limbic pathways and the brain's inexorable memory mechanism reinforces them. We are, who we are and who we become depends in part on whom we love. Who we are and who we become depends in part on whom we love. Which brings us to Jesus' final words in our teaching today. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The question Jesus is encouraging the listener to ask is, what is my life oriented around? What is the framework upon which I build my life? What brain is being created by the things I'm consuming, prioritizing, or neglecting? There are only two options. Mammon, which is an ancient way of saying wealth, status, possessions, money. It's what culture says is important. Or the kingdom of God, where his will is supreme, attachment is more important than achievement, and serving others above yourself is the way to honor. It is not possible, Ben Witherington says, to give one's primary allegiance, one's undivided attention and service to both. To be divided only causes anxiety, which I believe... um, Until recently, I thought that the Sermon on the Mount was kind of broken into unrelated teachings, but now I'm seeing this teaching today has a whole lot to do with the teaching next week, which talks about don't worry about tomorrow, don't be anxious. When you're filling your brain with the wrong things, anxiety is a natural byproduct, and we'll hear a lot more about that next week, I think. But Jesus is saying, you will be miserable if you try to have a foot in both worlds. In fact, it will not even work. At some point, your brain will become more like me or like the things you are giving your life to. And you have to choose. Jesus' invitation is clear. Treasure up, treasure in heaven. But what does that mean? Gary Stassen says, to have one's treasure in heaven means to submit oneself to God's sovereign rule. The contrast is not this life and the life after, but this life where there is injustice and life transformed by God's reign. 
He says, strive first for God's reign and God's restorative justice does not mean first this and then everything else. It means above all else. God wants your heart, not only your money, but Jesus is a realist. Your heart tends to follow your money. Over the last few years since I read this book the first time, I've done a lot of reflecting, and this information has just been so impactful to my own life. I was reading some of the quotes um, about how children's brains are affected by love and teared up reading them to Shandy earlier in the week, just thinking about how much society has undervalued powerful time with children. Thinking about how we become who we like, who we spend the most time with, has helped me prioritize prayer, reading scripture. It's helped me feel motivated to watch the time I spend on my phone more closely, to put more thought into what kind of shows I watch and how often. It was a huge influencer in my deciding to spend lots of time with Fletch and Fowl the last couple of years and to help them spend as much time with Shandy as possible so their brains can be made in the best way. In a general theory on love, the doctors talk about the patterns we see in relationships. They talk about how you see this kind of typical um, scenario, right? It'll be this, this guy that is always dating overbearing women. You know, he, he, he dates an overbearing woman, complains the whole time, and then they break up. And then the next person he dates is just another overbearing woman, just like his mother. Or we, there's always kind of the jokes about girls with daddy issues, and every, girl, every guy they date just seems to be the same guy over and over. We've all seen it. We all have either been that person or know that person. What they say is that because of relationships, the premise is because of how their relationships were in the past, they are uncomfortable in healthy relationships. Their brain does not compute that a healthy relationship is love. It computes whatever, whatever they grew up in as love. What God is trying to tell us in this passage, I think, is it's not that God is looking to be critical and pick at you and see if you made it or not. What if in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is telling us that the brain we make is the most important thing? Yes, he wants us to do the right thing, but more than that, he wants us to be the kind of person who is like him. Not because he's vindictive or picky or critical or any of the other stories we tell ourselves about what God is like, but maybe it's because if we make a brain that is not like his, we're just like that girl with daddy issues. We're just like that guy who dates the overbearing woman. Heaven the place where God's will is done completely, the place where you get to be with God just wouldn't feel right. Maybe to that person, love is something else. Maybe it's not so much that God's primary concern is who is in and who's out, but ultimately, he gives you the love that you want. He gives you the brain that you've chosen, the thing that feels the most like home to you. Final quote on general theory on love. A good deal of modern American culture is an extended experiment in the effects of depriving people what they crave most. The consequences that flow from limbic ignorance are as grim as love's victories are miraculous. 
In the pursuit of further riches, the information age demands a more thoroughgoing surrender. Less time for relationships, less time for children, more time for impersonal everything. Before our lives wither away into dust, we might ponder how much more prosperity human beings can possibly survive. In light of that, the invitation of Jesus is clear and beautiful and good. I'm going to read it one more time. Sit back and let it sink in. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. I don't know about you, but I want to follow Jesus. Jesus, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that not only you're open to being in a relationship with us, but that you pursue us. We ask that we would continually learn to be with you, to become like you, to allow you to create us into the kind of person you describe in the Sermon on the Mount. We, be, we thank you that your instructions are so timeless and so helpful, God, and we just ask that we could begin to see them in a way that is for our good and for your glory, not as a list of things that we can and can't do, but an invitation to make a brain that lives in your kingdom, God. We thank you so much for... Um, giving us this wisdom in a culture that tells us the exact opposite, in a culture where we're flooded by information, overwhelmed by all kinds of stimulation, and we just thank you that following you is simple. Not easy, but simple to do. Thank you again for loving us in your name. Amen.